Malachi. Malachi today in chapter 2, for those of you who are just visiting with us today, you are catching us in a study through some of the minor prophets. Uh, We are uh, today about halfway through an argument that began back in chapter 1, verse 6, an argument, a disputation that the Lord has with the priests of Israel at the time who were not holding up his name as honorable uh, and as holy before the people. And we saw uh, the beginning of, uh, of an indictment against them uh, last week from the end of chapter 1. And today we will see very much the verdict of God upon these crooked priests uh, and his direction for the priests that would glorify his name. So Malachi chapter 2 today, reading verses 1 through 9. And before we read that passage together, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer and seek his blessing upon uh, the reading and study of his word. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we uh, are your people and you have gathered us under your word and so we pray for the gift and the filling and the strengthening of your spirit that we by your power would be strengthened in the inner man so that we together with all the saints may comprehend what is the height and depth and length and breadth that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you would fill fill us with the fullness of God And cause us to grow up into maturity into him, our head, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Malachi chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 9. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study this word together today. It was uh, on the morning of March 25th, 1843, and Robert Murray McShane uh, passed from this life into glory. He was still a young man. He had served only just shy of eight years in pastoral ministry. According to one of his biographers, though he died in his 29th year, more was wrought by him that will last for eternity than most men accomplish in a lifetime. 
Robert Murray McShane is well known to this congregation, well known to you perhaps because of his, uh, his through the Bible reading plan that some of you may be going through. But McShane became a household name in Scotland after his death because of the publication of his biography. It was called The Memoirs and Remains of Robert Murray McShane, and this book is a goldmine for pastors. Uh, it contains largely excerpts and snippets from his personal journals, and one of the recurring themes of McShane's writing was the nature of Christian ministry. What is Christian ministry for? What is it supposed to accomplish? Who are the men? What kinds of men does the Lord use to advance his kingdom, and his church. In one poignant quote, he summarizes what he calls the greatest need of a people from their pastor. I want to read that quote for you in just a minute. Uh, But before I do, I want to ask you how you might answer this query, how you might finish McShane's sentence. The greatest need of my people, he wrote in his journals, is... Now, maybe it's an unfair question. It's probably one that you haven't thought much about before. That's natural. We don't think much about what our doctors do until we get sick. And we probably don't think much about what the pastor does unless there's a problem. Unless you're looking for a new church, or you're looking for a replacement pastor, or you're looking for someone to give you good counsel, the pastor can become like the color of the paint on your walls. Something you just get used to. Something that you don't have to think about very much. But outside those situations there where you have a problem, so long as the preaching is bearable, we might say, the preacher's just there. In fact, maybe that's how you would answer McShane's sentence. Maybe the greatest need of a people from their preacher is sound preaching. Not something flashy, not not earth-shaking, just good, faithful, clear, biblical teaching. That's uh, the way that many would would answer, maybe that's the primary purpose of a pastor. Then again, others might say that the greatest need of a congregation from their minister is a compassionate ear. Someone to, uh, to listen to your struggles. Someone to hear your doubts. Someone to come alongside of you and remind you of God's goodness while you're suffering. There are churches that seem to want a pastor that will tell them how to vote. There are churches that seem to want a pastor that will tell them how to raise their children. There are churches that seem to want a pastor to be a public figure that pushes for social change. According to McShane, he believed the issue was much more foundational. The greatest need of my people, he said, is my personal holiness. Holiness, he says. That is the rudder that steers the ship of ministry, because as goes the pastor, so go the people, very often. We find that in the passage before us by a sort of sad counterexample in Malachi chapter 2, that where there is holiness in the priests, in the shepherds, the leaders in a church, the people will be helped. The name of God will be glorified, and the opposite is also true. Because when the shepherds are not walking with God themselves, they can hardly lead his sheep in the right direction. Well, no matter how much or or how little you may think about what a pastor is for, we find in Malachi chapter 2 that God has some pretty strong opinions about what the shepherds of his people ought to be and to do. We find that first in the first four verses as God gives us his decision against 
false priests. That's our first point today. God's decision against false priests. Now, in these first four verses of the chapter, the key word that you need to see, the word that binds these verses together, really, at the front and at the end, uh, is this idea of the command of the Lord. Look at verse 1. And now, O priest, this command is for you. And then verse 4. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you. That's a Hebrew word that you recognize. Uh, The word command, some translations have commandment. That word is mitzvah. And so you know, if you've ever been invited to a bar mitzvah, that that is a Jewish boy's coming-of-age celebration. It is at the uh, age of 13, the first Sabbath after the 13th birthday, uh, that the Jewish boy becomes a bar mitzvah, a son of the commandment. They are held accountable at that time for all 613 laws that God gave and instructed his people to hold to through what we call the Old Testament. And so we're familiar with this idea of command. A commandment is normally something that God tells his people to do. We have the Ten Commandments. We know what it should be. But now we have a problem in the text. Because though it says that this is a command, we're expecting some imperatives and we don't see them. When we look in these verses, we're waiting for God to say, Thou shalt or thou shalt not. And instead what he says is, I will. This is God's command. What he will do. Verse 2, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings indeed. I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. And so in this context, God's command is his verdict. It is his decision of judgment against his people. Now, he's already outlined his case against them, his his legal case against these priests who who defile his name by their crooked offerings. But now he's giving judgment in the form of a command. He says, I will send the curse upon you, the curse that he promised so long ago. That's almost a direct quote of Deuteronomy chapter 28. And there, uh, in Deuteronomy, it shows up in the context of Blessings and curses of promises for obedience and judgments for disobedience to God's ways and his law. Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 20 says, The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. In other words, the disaster It is about to come upon these priests in God's temple is something that they should have seen coming. It is utterly consistent with what the Lord has already revealed about his unchanging standards for his people. This is God's command. Now this may feel like a pretty long explanation of a single word, but until we understand the background of what God is saying here, we're not going to catch the punchline. When God reveals this is his command for the priest, he's using language that has to do with the priest's day-to-day work among the people. Remember that the priests weren't only sacrifice makers in Israel, they were also law interpreters for the people. That is one of the reasons, as we read today and as we've been reading through Joshua, the Levites, the clan from whom the the, uh, priests were taken, the Levites didn't receive their own tribal allotment. They weren't all smushed into Jerusalem where the temple was held. They were scattered throughout the other tribes, partly because they were to be a resource for the people. So in Israel's day, if, if you had a question about tithing, 
or fasting or teaching your commandments to your children, you went to see the priest. If you had a rash that you were worried might turn out to be leprosy, you went to see the priest. If you had a dispute with your neighbor about where to draw the line between your land and his land, you went to the priest because they were the experts on the law, and this was a matter of God's commandments. And so you went to the priest to have God's word, his commands, interpreted for you. It was the job of the priests in Israel to apply God's word for God's people. They were required to render faithful, impartial judgment according to what the Lord has already spoken. So when the Lord says this is his verdict upon his priests, he's telling them that he's going to do for them what they should have been doing for the people all along. He's going to take them back to the text. He's going to remind them of what he's already said. He's going to convince them that he is a God who always keeps his word. And so the verdict comes. And through the prophet, the Lord declares his decision. It comes in language that is so graphic that the earliest Jewish interpreters of the text tried to downplay what God was actually saying. God says he will curse their blessings. He says he will rebuke their offerings. He says he will spread the dung of their offerings on the faces of the priests, and he will take them away with it. Without getting too far into the details, this is another indication that the priests in Malachi's day still knew right from wrong, and good from evil, and light from darkness, and clean from unclean. Animal sacrifice is a nasty business. In every offering, there are parts that are left over that have to be dealt with. So there's head and there's hooves, uh, there's guts and all sorts of things. And all of that stuff was normally taken outside of the temple. In fact, it was taken outside the bounds of the city, and it was taken to the dump, to the refuse heap, where it was all burned in some large, revolting mess. And they did that because that's what you should do. That's what propriety demanded. To leave the manure in the temple would have been a terrible desecration of the name of the Lord. And God is saying he feels the same way about these priests. To leave them where they are would be a desecration of his holy worship and of his glorious name. And so his verdict is to make them defiled. To make them disqualified remove them from their place. They are unfit to represent the holiness of God's name. They are unable to lead the people of God in worship. Now, if these verses reveal anything to us, I think they really show us the character of our God. That is because God punishes those things that he cares about. Throughout the scriptures, we find that our God is a God of justice. And so he does not allow the oppressor or the persecutor to go unpunished, even though it may sometimes look that way from our vantage point in this life. God cares about justice, and he will have justice at the last day. We read in the scriptures that our God is a God who is righteous. And so the wicked will not prosper in their wickedness. We read and we see here that our God is a God who is zealous for the glory of his name. That he's jealous for the worship of his people. And so he declares a curse upon the priest who take his name lightly. Upon those who turn the hearts of his people away from the Lord. So you may be asking, why should it matter to you? What kind of judgment God brought a bunch 
against a bunch of priests 2,500 years ago in some place that you've never been and likely will never be. Well, it matters because the God who delivered this decision is the God who doesn't change. He's a God who still desires worship and reverence from his people from their heart. He still commands that we all, pastors, priests, people alike, we should fix it in our minds. We should establish it in our souls that the Lord is a great God who is to be feared. He is the great king who is to be praised among the nations. Let me ask you, what were the transgressions in your household that received a more severe reaction than some others? You know that parents aren't always balanced in the way that they apply the rules. Sometimes they apply the rules differently depending on circumstances. Sometimes they apply the rules differently depending on the child. And we see that. And and what that reveals to us often, for better or for worse, is what parents care about. And so maybe you receive a warning if you try to sneak an extra cookie, but you receive a spanking if you try to lie and say that your sister was the one who took it. Maybe your father got a little bit angry when you intentionally scribbled on the walls and he flew off the handle when you accidentally scratched the car. It shows what your parents care about. Now, our God takes the glory of his name and the hearts of his people very seriously. So he declares judgment against those who misrepresent his name, who mislead his people. And that is always the way that God works. James chapter 3 warns us, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Hebrews 13 says that your leaders in the church are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. One commentator said that great blessing of ministry leads to great responsibility, which brings the danger of great judgment. Why? Because God cares how his people worship. He cares that they know him and see him and rejoice in him as he is. He is devoted to the spiritual health of his people. He is determined that they should have shepherds that will uphold the glory of the name of Christ. That's why verse 4 declares not only punishment, but purification. Do you notice the reason that the Lord gives for this verdict that he delivers? Verse 4, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. This is a foretaste of what we'll see later. And the one who comes as a purifier of the people of Levi. But what we find here is that the Lord desires something better than what the priests were giving. In fact, he always had a better plan for the leaders of his people. And that brings us to the second point that we see in the second half of this passage. In verse 5, we move from God's decision against false priests to God's design for faithful shepherds. Our second main point, God's design for faithful shepherds. Now, if the controlling word in verses 1 to 4 is command... The controlling word in verses 5 to 9 is covenant. The Lord is rehearsing this this commitment that he made, this covenantal bond that he had to the tribe that he chose to serve as priests among his people. And in that bond, notice the language of mutual accountability and mutual responsibility. Verse 5, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and He feared my name. He stood in awe of my name. 
In other words, in this covenantal relationship, God made promises, and he kept them. And God required duties, and they did them. All of it's outlined in the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus, where we see these things and what the, uh, the Levites and the priests would receive and what they were commanded to do. But in a basic sense, this idea of mutual responsibility uh, conveys God's covenantal relationships with all of his people at all times, even after the fall. So our Westminster Confession of Faith tells us that after the covenant of works was broken by Adam, the Lord established the covenant of grace. There's mutual responsibility here. He established the covenant of grace wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. It goes on to tell us he also gives the Holy Spirit to do what we can't do, to work that faith in our hearts that he requires. But this isn't so unfamiliar. That in a covenant relationship, God makes promises God requires obedience. For salvation, he requires the obedience of faith. And in the days of his priest, he required the obedience of keeping his name honorable among the people. And that was to be expressed in certain ministerial duties in the temple. That's what we find in verses 6 to 9, really a comparison between some of the ministerial duties, what the priests were supposed to do, and now, excuse me, what the priests at the time were actually doing. It focuses on, on three things in particular. And in these three things, I think we see the, uh, the design that God has for his shepherds. Uh, these uh, requirements, these duties are true teaching, right living, and turning sinners back to God. So true teaching. Verse 6 tells us, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. Now remember, the priests were to be interpreters of God's law for the people. And so it won't surprise you that throughout this passage, everywhere you see the word instruction, the Hebrew behind that is actually Torah. That's the name that the Old Testament saints gave to the first five books of Moses. Collectively, they were God's instruction, his Torah for his people. And that means that, that God's first requirement for the men who will uh, shepherd his people is that they should faithfully proclaim and apply God's word as he has delivered it to them. They do not have the option of coming up with their own list of sins and ceremonies. They are not allowed to downplay God's standards. They must not twist God's declarations to suit their situations and their conveniences, but that's exactly what the priests in Malachi's day were doing. Verse 9 says, you do not keep my ways, but you show partiality in your Torah, in your instruction. Partiality is favoritism. Partiality is playing to the crowd. Partiality is softening the edges of God's requirements because you don't want to offend the people who might be listening because they may be able to line your priestly pockets a little bit more. Now, the New Testament equivalent of this idea is an ear tickler. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You can make a pretty good living for yourself if you learn how to suit other people's passions. If you can figure out just how to tell people what you think they want to hear. We have a word for a category of people who make their living doing this, and we call them influencers. Ear ticklers, Paul would say. Teachers to suit their own fancy and their own passions. One of the easiest ways to get promoted and to be praised in the world is to stand up and clap your hands for every passing fad in our culture. 
And God's word says that his shepherds must not do that. God's leaders in the church must offer God's word untwisted. True teaching, he says. Just as importantly, they have to hold the right living. Verse 6 continues. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. You're aware of this terminology. It's also familiar to you. When we speak of our walk in the scriptures, we talk about our way of living. The things that we do. The the way that we conduct ourselves. And our walk can be either righteous or wicked, godly or ungodly. Genesis chapter 5 summarizes a godly life when it tells us that Enoch walked with God. 1 John chapter 1 tells us that if we say that we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. So when the Lord says that his faithful priests walked with him in peace and in uprightness, it means that they did more than pay lip service to the words that they taught the people. God's words settled down and took up residence in their lives. You remember that phrase from the New Testament that you should let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. God's word was not only something they taught, but something they lived. It was something that produced spiritual fruit according to the working of his work in their lives. It's this marriage of upright words and an upright life. It's the reason that when you turn to the New Testament and you look for qualifications for elders and deacons, you don't find a list of of professional achievements. You find a list of character qualities, virtues that these men in the church ought to have. And here we come back to that consuming desire of men like Robert Murray McShane. In another place in his journals, he wrote, It's not great talents that God blesses in ministry so much as a great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. McShane uses the word awful the way that New Englanders say wicked. It's a good thing. An awesome weapon, we might say. Yeah, but in the temple, these priests are making an awful mess of what they should have been doing and living rightly with the Lord. Take a look at verse 8. You have turned aside from the way. Here are men who have chosen to walk in their own direction. They've gone down a bypath meadow, perhaps. They've taken a different way around. They've twisted God's word. They've abandoned God's ways. And now they've become a spiritual danger to themselves and to everyone else around them. And that brings us to the third duty that they should have been dealing with. The third requirement for God's ministers is that they should be turning sinners to their God. Read verse 6 with me again. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And he turned many away from iniquity. That's where it's supposed to lead. Right? God had a plan for his priests in the Old Testament. It wasn't just to set up some sort of hierarchy where these are the important people and these are the, the less important people. He called his priests, he still ordains men in his kingdom and, and to service in his church. He called these men because there are souls who need to be saved. Because there are sheep without a shepherd. He established these men because there are sinners who need to be brought to the only wise God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, the only one who has mercy and forgiveness and forgiveness of iniquity, transgression, and sin. But you see the reversal that these priests have made of this design. Verse 8, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the word of hosts. That is the most fearful summary 
that the Lord could make of a man's ministry. Teachers are held to a higher standard, says James. Your leaders are keeping watch over your souls to give an account, says Hebrews. Jesus says that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, literally to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened about his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. What a terrible thing, a thought to be a minister of the gospel and yet to cause the uh, others to, to, lead, uh, to go into sin rather than to walk away from it. It's not what the Lord intended for his shepherds and for his pastors. I see the same idea in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Watch yourself, he says. Watch your teaching. Save yourself, he says. Save your hearers. In other words, true teaching, right living, and turning sinners to their God. It's the same design that God had in the Old Testament that he also now has in the New Testament. This is what faithful shepherds in the church are supposed to be. And then, again, most of you are sitting there going, good for you, pastor. Most of the people in this room are not pastors. Most of you are not elders. You're you're not deacons. Many of you will never be leaders in that sense in the church. And so what does this have to do with you? Why do you need to think so deeply about what God wants for those who would lead his church? Remember a little bit ago I told you that this passage through the judgment reveals what God really cares about. The same is true here. We can take it a step further. What we find here is not just what God cares about, but what his people really need. Remember that that when God gave his people priests in the Old Testament, they were one part of a much larger system. The priests were a part of a whole religious system set up with with ceremonies and rituals and and laws about ceremonial cleanness. They came with a a sanctuary and with an altar and with a mercy seat that was so far removed from the people in the community that they knew they could never approach that mercy seat in the sinfulness of their flesh. And so God gave them a mediator, someone who could be a go-between for them, someone who could bridge the gap between their sin and God's holiness. The priests were a part of God's symbolic demonstration that even his own chosen holy people can't come near to him without a mediator. They were a reminder that without the blood of an atoning sacrifice and without somebody to plead their case before the Creator, there is no hope of the least of his gifts of life and of peace and of the forgiveness of sin. So when God gives us the design that he has and has had all along for a faithful shepherd, what he's doing is showing us what we really need. And he is, by the way, also preparing us to see what only he can provide for us. Now, yesterday, many of you were gathered at the home of Landon and Cynthia Rowland. We had a beautiful picnic there, and we were celebrating Pastor Andrew Davis and his ministry among us before he goes on to God's next calling for him and for his ministry. And when the microphone was turned on, many of you stood up and you said some really beautiful things. You shared your memories about the ways that Andrew has ministered among you. You shared how thankful you were to God for all the things that he's done and given through Andrew and through his wife Meredith to our church. 
You said some beautiful things, some really sincere things. And I have no doubt that if you were given the chance, you'd say probably some pretty nice things about me, too. But then you all know the score, don't you? You know that no matter how faithfully your pastors open the scriptures for you on Sunday, you know that no matter how many phone calls they might make and how many emails they might write, You know that no no matter how long your pastors may labor in prayer over your souls, and no matter how closely they walk with the Lord through the week, that they're in the same boat that you are. You think nice thoughts, and you say nice things about your pastors, but you know the truth. You know that your pastors are just as easily frustrated with the smallness of their faith as you are with yours. You know that your pastors struggle with doubts about the future just like you do. You know that your pastors are also prone to bitterness and anger and resentment and disillusionment about what the Lord might be doing in their lives. You know that every once in a while, probably more than every once in a while, your pastors are tempted to tell you what they think you want to hear and not what God has delivered for your souls you know that your pastors are every bit as sinful as you are at least. And that they are in desperate need of the very same thing that you do. A better shepherd. A faithful priest. A mediator in the words of Job who can lay his hands on man and God, who in himself can bridge the gap between our sin and God's holiness. I love Robert Murray McShane, but he didn't go far enough. The greatest need of my people is the same as my greatest need. The greatest need is the same as the greatest need of every pastor and priest and elder and deacon who's ever lived. The greatest need of my people is the same as the need of every person hearing the sound of my voice. We need a faithful high priest, a shepherd who can lead us to the Father in himself. And that's exactly who we have in Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Hebrews 7, 26 tells us it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And then Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, the point of what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. One who is seated in the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the, holy, in the holy places. Why did God give you this word in Malachi about these crooked priests? He gave you this word so that you would see what he really cares about. He gave you this word so that you would see what you really need. He gave you this word so that you would see what he supplies in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for our faithful high priest. Let's join together at his table. Let's pray. O Lord and God, we thank you that you have sent your Son into the world to save sinners. 
We thank you for the word of the gospel. We thank you for Christ's faithful intercession on our behalf. We pray that we would draw near through him in confidence and full assurance of faith. Meet us at your table. Give us the fellowship of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.